Hi, I'm Case Lowe, co-host of the Open the Voice Gate podcast. The one question I'm constantly asked when it comes to Dragon Gate is how do I get into the promotion? Well, stop asking and start listening to the Open the Voice Gate podcast released every Wednesday on the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. For exclusive news and show reviews, look no further than the leader in Dragon Gate coverage, Open the Voice Gate. Welcome back, everyone, to the Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast. I am your host, as always, Jesse Collings. And joining me here today as uh, a very special guest, the first guest ever on the show that was not from the United States or Canada. It's Garrett Kidney. Garrett, how are you doing today? I know you said very special guest, not just special, very special. So I appreciate that. I have special guests and like, like, you know, special is being kind of used liberally. They're not really that special. But you, my friend. <laughs> are a very special guest. You see, I didn't declare it, but it's actually, it's one of those things where it's like, you actually negotiated with my agent for like 16 weeks about exactly what I'm titled as. It's very special. Is it special? Do I get the and Garrett Kidney at the end of the credits instead of just being Garrett Kidney? You know, it's all very delicate information. Yes, the hammer spot at the end of the credits. Like, oh, I yeah. thought all the big stars were, were listed. Oh no, what? And Forrest Whitaker? He's at the end of this movie? Um, but, uh, I, the reason Garrett's on today is because, uh, and I, I said this to him briefly before I, we went on the air, uh, I had a thought, a very dangerous independent thought, um, and, I, and I got it in the shower, which is where, I'm not going to lie, most of my great ideas either happen while I'm driving or when I'm in the shower. Pretty much all my content ideas happen in one of those two locations. Um, but I had a thought, and I think that thought in uh, that kind of hypothesis would be an interesting episode uh for the show and it's of course about tna and impact and kind of the historical legacy the company has and there really isn't anyone better to talk about it than garrett who of course garrett you host you've got to be kidding me a tna history podcast which is on the voices of wrestling network as well um and you're just overall just the tna guy garrett are you familiar with larry uh matzik at all uh, yes, the the announcer. Yes, so Larry Matzik, um, is he's kind of like a jack of all trades. Like he's an announcer. He was in the booking office for a while. He's a historian. He's written several books. But he's kind of like the hist. He uh, recently passed away a couple of years ago. But during that time period, he became like the kind of the de facto St. Louis wrestling guy. Like if you need to know anything about the history of wrestling in St. Louis, you turn to Larry Matzik. Uh, and for for uh, for these purposes, really, Garrett, to me, you're like the Larry Matzik of TNA and Impact Wrestling. There really isn't anyone I'd rather talk about this than you. So I just want to put that out there. As there's, I don't think there's anyone more qualified to talk about that. And and I'll get to why in a minute. But I really appreciate you being able to come on the show today. If you'd like to tie Larry Matzik and me together, a bunch of the Wrestling at the Chase um uh compilation sets are owned by anthem so they're both currently under the same corporate umbrella now you can watch a bunch of them in impact plus right and, and for transparency purposes i just want to mention and, and garrett said it's oh okay yeah with second that, i do a cheap plug it's like wait a minute <laughs> that garrett works and has worked for tna impact in the past um and i, I don't so if you, if you think if garrett rolls out a take and you guys just want to hand wave it and dismiss it that that's your out right there Either because of the perceived conflict of interest or because you think I'm stupid. I'll accept either one or the other. 
Yes. Um, and, and that's, and that's fine. And I really, I don't think we're going to, it's really going to come into play based on what we're going to discuss here today. Um, but just wanted to put that out there for full transparency reasons. Um, but, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on as well, Garrett, is because it's really difficult to talk about TNA slash impact wrestling. And the reason it's difficult, I think, is because there's not that many people out there that can offer what I think would is like a fair and honest perspective on the company. I think you have a vast majority of wrestling fans out there who either never watched TNA um maybe watched it like once or twice but never really watched it never really followed it never really cared about it and then you also have other people who were kind of downright hostile towards the company and you know just exist to make lol tna jokes and things like that and that seems to be like a vast majority of kind of fans and discussion that you see about tna is kind of people just talking about all the stupid things that tna did over the years and what a joke of a company it is and they're just they're not interested in having like a good faith honest discussion about it and then a smaller segment of people out there are your tna hardcore fans that are just not like on the other side are going to be very defensive of any form of TNA or impact criticism. And they're largely made that way because of the first group that I just described people who never treated TNA fairly or gave it a fair chance uh, has created a, a very defensive fan base of the company. And that exists in all of wrestling companies. And you certainly see that now with a lot of AEW fans who can't handle any form of criticism of the company because of the, uh, number of, of of prominent voices in the wrestling community who are not willing to talk about AEW in good faith. Um, but again, you're one of the people who not only have you been a big fan of TNA, not only have you worked for them, not only have you followed them closely, but you're also very willing to be fair about what their very real strengths and very real weaknesses are. And that's kind of hard to find. Yeah, it's funny. When I was first writing consistently, about TNA, it would have been for the website TNA Asylum, which was like the less crazy sister site to the TNA Mecca. If you're not near deep TNA fan lore and you don't know those, so there was TNA Asylum, which was like, like it was a normal fan site. They obviously liked the company, but they weren't absolutely crazy psychotic about it. And then a splinter group of people who didn't think TNA Asylum was positive enough spun off and created TNA Mecca, which was crazy and one of the craziest places you'll ever see in your life about a wrestling company. But I like I would have been like I would have been like the dissenting voice on TNA Asylum at the time, where it's just like, listen, these shows are pretty good, but not great, and they have problems, and they those problems need to be fixed. And not all those people hated me, which to be fair to them, though it's it's crazy to think it. It makes you feel really old. Like part of the reason you don't get great. TNA analysis anymore is like we're nearly 10 years removed from TNA being on spike like that's a, a long gap between like the the kind of peak of TNA's years being super relevant to the wrestling scene to now it's been nearly a decade coming up in 2014 so I just I don't think people like have gone back and revisited TNA that much and I think you're seeing more of it happen now like like I know a bunch of popular podcasts are going back and watching predicted 10 2010 Hogan era stuff I know the the Laps fan podcast is doing that I know like Deadlock always like not quite built their brand on TNA stuff but like you know I, I both loving and Poking fun at celebration of TNA was always part of Deadlock's brand as well. So I think you're you're seeing like more and more people kind of revisit and try to recontextualize TNA with the eye of 
as you said, uh, the, the discussion around TNA at the time, back for nearly all of its existence, at least during the, the first like 10, 15 years of its existence anyway, was, as you said, a lot of people being like, this is dumb and stupid. And then a smaller group of people being like, no, wait, it's my personality. And those people just argue and argue and argue, and there wasn't much middle ground. But now that we are removed from all those years, you can look back on and kind of laugh at the stupid stuff and celebrate the good stuff without without it needing the weight of this is the number two wrestling company and this really does need to succeed. You you don't have that weight anymore that you had in real time that you can go back and kind of look at it for what it was rather than you kind of wanted it to be. Yeah, and there's a... um, it You putting it in perspective, like it's been 10 years since they were last on Spike. And it does make me think about like... When I first started really engaging in like the IWC, like talking about wrestling online, um, it was right around probably like 2009, I would say, um, would be when I like fully joined as a teenager. My parents were late adopters to high speed internet. We had dial up for a long time. So actually as a kid, I really didn't spend that much time on the internet because I never found it enjoyable because it took so long for like a page to load. So I really wasn't online at all until I was in high school, which is probably a little bit later than people of my age range. I think Garrett, I think you're like a couple of years older than me, but I'm 28 years old. Um, just to put it in some perspective. But when I first got online and I was in high school and I was starting to, you know, post in, in comment sections and in forums and stuff like that, like TNA was a huge like discussion point. It was something we talked about every week. It was something we always talked about. It's constant comparison to what WWE was doing. It was, in my mind, in my circle of like kind of the IWC, an absolutely major foundational aspect of pro wrestling discussion. And it's you're right in that you know now people do people still talk about Impact? Absolutely, is it a topic that people still still kind of consider worth discussing sure but it's not nearly as big obviously other companies like AEW have come in and really taken a lot of that mojo but at the time when i was first kind of wading into the the iwc during those uh those times like tna was as talked about for me as much as wwe was and certainly more than any other wrestling company that was out there at the time yeah when you think about say go back to 06 07 08 there was wwe there was tna and there was ring of honor and that was pre the era where literally every wrestling company in the world was at your fingertips like it is now. Like TNA weren't really competing with New Japan in 2006, whereas everybody's competing with New Japan now. Everybody's competing with DDT. Everybody's competing with Progress. Everybody's competing with Smash Wrestling because everyone can reach everybody now. That's the the the, the, both the pro and the con of the internet and in that any small company, if well-marketed and uh, they present good content, can potentially chip away at that audience and create discussion around themselves as opposed to by then it's like you had people who would tape trade and people who would like watch new japan but that's much more deep in the weeds much harder to watch so it's, you're you're naturally going to have a much more hardcore sect of fans watching that stuff and then like it's the mainstream casual stuff that's on tv which is tna and WWE, and then the smaller well big the big indie stuff which is ring of honor and then probably to a lesser extent pwg in that era so it's just a completely different time now where you have literally everybody available to everybody. Let me ask you this, and I'll, I'll go into my own story after you, but how did you first kind of find out about TNA and what was kind of your experience discovering the company or hearing about the company and watching it for the first time? 
So there was a, a channel called the Wrestling Channel over here that had TNA. They had the broadcast rights to TNA over in the UK and Europe. And I watched some of it there. And every time I would have turned it on, it would have been terrible Asylum Era stuff. So I would have been turned it on. It's like, oh, it's the Dup Cup or the Hard Ten or some other Asylum Era nonsense. And I'm like, what on earth is this? Why would anybody on earth watch this? And it wasn't until like 2006 where I, I kind of stopped watching WWE as much because I, I grew up a WWE kid. I was watching WWE in the late 90s, never really watched WCW because I didn't have the channels to watch it. So I grew up a WWE kid. By the time I reached the mid 2000s, I reached like, because I would have been what, 15, 16, would have been at like that that age where most wrestling fans go either, this is the thing I'm going to watch for life or this is my childhood folly I will leave behind. And it was that moment where I discovered TNA and my brother bought me back a Best of the X Division Volume 2 DVD because he went on holiday to, I think it was Boston. And he brought me back that as a present. And I watched all that and I saw Styles and Joe and Saban and Shelley and Lethal and Sanjay and Shark Boy, of course, and all those X Division guys, PD Williams. And those were the guys I kind of fell in love with post WWE. Those were my like entryway to the wrestling beyond WWE. And that's how I stuck with TNA because that was late 06. So I remember the first impact I watched in full was their uh, two-hour primetime special that had Christian and Abyss in a cage match and Angles in ring debut against uh, Abyss. Um, sorry, Christian and Rhino cage match. Um, and that was like the first impact I watched. And I was like, oh, I like Rhino, I like Christian. And then though there's AJ again and there's Joe and all the people I like in Kurt Angle's here now. So like, realistically, it was probably Kurt Angle that pushed me over the line if you think about it, like those timelines add up. But yeah, that was my, my, but that was when I adopted TNA as a cause for the rest of my life, apparently. Yes. I, uh, I, I am very similar in a lot of ways. I, uh, but a couple of years behind in the sense of the first time I remember, like, I, I really wasn't, I wasn't really a wrestling fan until I was about 10 years old, which would be around 2004, 2005. Um, and that's when I first got into wrestling. I never really watched it when I was like five or six years old. So by the time I'm watching it, you know, the we're full blown ruthless aggression era. The attitude era is fully dead. Um, and I was really into wrestling. I got really into it uh, during that time frame. And all my friends were into it. All my friends in, in fifth grade and whatever uh, were into it as well. And I remember seeing commercials for TNA it must have been when they were about to come on Spike, which would have been right around that time period. And I didn't really understand it. Like I was like, oh, another wrestling company is going to be on television. Like I didn't really understand what it was. Like I think I understood it wasn't WWE. Um, and I knew that, like, oh, they're going to have Jeff Hardy on it. And I remember some people at school being like, yeah, Jeff Hardy is going to be on TNA. And I was like, I hadn't even watched WWE when Jeff Hardy was there. I had no idea. Like really, I knew he was Matt Hardy's brother. And I think he had been in like one of the video games I had played, but I didn't really have any like understanding of who Jeff Hardy was, but I remember that kind of happening. And then, but I never watched it. Um, and then one day uh, it was my friend's birthday was coming up and we were going to get him a, a present at, uh, my mom was going to buy him a present because that's what happens when you're a kid and someone, one of your friend's birthdays, your parents buy a present for that kid. But uh, we were at a, like a Toys R Us store. And uh, we wanted to, you know, he's a big wrestling fan and we got him, wanted to get him like a, one of the a wrestling ring, like a WWE ring with the action figures. And I think the the WWE ring was marginally more expensive than the TNA ring uh, that they had at the store. And my mom said, why don't we get this one? And I'm like, sure, I don't care. It's a wrestling ring. 
for your plan. It doesn't really have to have like a WWE branding on it. So I got my friend a, a wrestling ring, uh, the TNA six-sided ring, and it came with an AJ Styles action figure. And I gave it to my friend. And like a few weeks later, my friend was like, oh, Jesse, you know that wrestling ring you got me? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, I watched the wrestling show and, it, you know, it's it's really good. And and I the action figure guy, AJ Styles, he's like an amazing wrestler. And I said, oh, that's cool. And then so I must have checked it out. Um, but then I kind of stopped watching wrestling altogether. I had like this phase where I was really into wrestling for like two years. And then I just stopped as I became a teenager and went through like this phase where I thought wrestling was really stupid um, and childish. Um, but then so at some point in high school, I got back into it and I started becoming more curious and more serious about my wrestling fandom. And I started looking for stuff online. And then because I was watching WWE, I decided to watch TNA at the time. Uh, and when I started watching TNA, it was just such a different product from WWE. Um, not everything, but just the speed of the wrestlers and what they were allowing their wrestlers to do. And they had the X division going at the time and they had a really good tag team division at the time. I remember when I first really started watching TNA, I can't remember the years specifically, but it was like really when they had a strong tag division, they had beer money, they had the Motor City Machine Guns, they had the uh, Magnus and Doug Williams tag team. Um, they just had like more tag team wrestling and they had more, you know, junior style wrestling that WWE just didn't have at all. Like WWE's tag team division at the time was like the Miz and John Morrison and nobody else. Uh, and they certainly were not allowing their wrestlers to go out and wrestle the way like amazing red was wrestling. Um, and so like, I started becoming a, a much bigger fan of TNA that way. And it really was like an introduction to non WWE style wrestling, which certainly opened the doors for me to starting to watch indie wrestling and then wrestling from Japan and then obviously AEW and other wrestling promotions. And it all starts with that, uh, with TNA and all starts with that, that TNA toy wrestling ring that they were selling for marginally fewer dollars than the WWE product, uh, at toy stores, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. And you got two whole extra sides for less dollars too. That's value for money. Yeah. I mean, that's probably what they were thinking, but seriously, like, but, but, but marketing it as slightly less, than what WWE was marketing their ring as is probably like, that's probably why a lot of people ended up buying it because it's basically the same function. Uh, and you got to buy the action figures anyway. Does it, it doesn't really matter if they're in the WWE ring or not. Um, but it is like, a, that is kind of like a, one of their smarter strategy ideas over the years was to just make it a little bit cheaper than WWE's product. And they did that with DVDs too, like the DVDs for TNA. I always remember like going to the store and the DVDs would always be like a little bit cheaper than the WWE uh, DVDs. And that would make me more inclined to buy them because I was a kid and I didn't have a lot of money. Yeah, I think both our stories there touched on what is probably one of the broader legacies of TNA. And that for both of us, TNA was like the gateway to wrestling beyond WWE. And I think that's the case for a lot of people that even if TNA wasn't your sticking point, even if that wasn't where you landed as a fan, like it was your introduction to Samoa Joe and then you'd go watch Ring of Honor. It was your introduction to some New Japan guys. You might see Liger there. You might see Tanahashi and that's your, your introduction through to New Japan. And I think that was the case for a lot of people when, as I said, back in, in the, the late 2000s, early 2010s, before the internet made all of this available, like you wouldn't have a way to see Samoa Joe unless you watched them on TNA and then you'd have to dive deeper. Like you wouldn't have that introductory step like you would these days. And I think that's one of the bigger legacies of TNA is that it was that introductory step to the, the wrestling beyond for so many people, especially in like the post WCW landscape, where if you were a fan coming up 
after WCW died, you wouldn't even know there was other wrestling. <laughs> like WWE, it's one of those things where like WWF and then WWE became like a synonym for wrestling because mm-hmm. there's there's no competition. So it's just WWE that is wrestling, unless you have the exposure to something else and you can dive your way on through those rabbit holes into the much more interesting world beyond WWE. Yeah, and I watched TNA as a kid for the first time, really, because it was accessible. It was on cable. It was on, you know, Thursday nights, I think, at the time on Spike TV. It was a channel that, you know, I got at my parents' house, and it it was accessible to watch. I really, uh, I wouldn't have been, like, you know, watching, even, like, on, like, I think, like, yes, the internet existed in 2010, but the access to, like, streaming wrestling and things like that that we have now, um didn't exist at all there wasn't even a lot of stuff on youtube like indie some indies would upload some stuff to youtube but it wasn't nearly the kind of amount of volume that's on youtube right now i think like that's something that maybe historically will end up being lost in hindsight is that yes we had the internet yes we had the iwc yes other promotions existed and yes people were posting stuff on on there but the sheer volume of stuff is really you know grew throughout the 2010s but at the beginning of that decade it really was hard to find like full wrestling shows and it was hard to find you know even matches for a lot of different promotions there just wasn't a lot of stuff uploaded compared to what we have now yeah and people don't know this because you can upload a video in as high quality as you like and as long as you like basically on youtube now that didn't used to be the case they used to have like eight minute upload limits and you could only upload in 360p unless you had a certain number of subscribers whether then you could upload long video like it was not a good good viewing experience for wrestling i remember in like 2007 2008 the main way i'd watch impact is it was uploaded to daily motion in like 10 10 minute chunks <laughs> yeah classic right you don't even think about that anymore like part one part two part three making sure you're clicking on the right ones in order and there'd be times where it's like well damn they pulled down part six <laughs> and i just have to skip past the 10 minutes of that match i guess and that's the way we watched wrestling it was horrible yeah, we have um, it, you know, it's 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 a trip. I uh, um, so so ne- I I assume they did this in Ireland, but I'm not sure. But Netflix here, like Netflix, started as a company that would mail DVDs to your house as a replacement from going to the video store. I'm I'm assuming they did that in the Ireland, right? I don't think so, because we did have we obviously had equivalents of Netflix. We had a, a chart busters and extra vision over here, which would be DVD rental places. But I'm, I'm not sure Netflix had a, like a, a big market here for the DVD rental stuff. It wasn't until streaming when they took over. OK, OK, so that so that makes sense. So so Netflix, you know, originally Netflix has been around for like 25 years, which most people don't realize because it started as this replacement to a, a video store. Um, I actually I'm going to turn my camera on here for everyone to see, because I actually still have one. Um, but I have a Netflix DVD that's mailed like this, and I am one of their last DVD, uh, subscribers. I'm like one of the last people in America that's still doing this and they are ending it, Garrett. They are finally, they finally gave up. They are finally ending their Netflix mail DVD uh, service. Um, which is one of those wild little notes that like like a lot of people did know that like they mailed dvds but i don't think a lot of people knew that they still mailed dvds until very recently when yeah, they're like so we're not doing that this, anymore it comes in this little thing and dvd comes out of it this is the natural in case i was wondering what movie i have and uh i started getting it it was like I, I first got a job when i was 14 years old in 2008 uh and like the very first thing i did when i was got a job was was uh was get a netflix account um, so I could get DVDs shipped to me. And uh, it's obviously the service is like totally outdated. Nobody collects DVDs that way anymore. 
but uh, I, I've always still paid for it. It's still the best way to get some old DVDs that aren't available on streaming services now. Um, but I got an email, you know, of them announcing what they uh, that they're they're ending it in September, and I was able to. Uh, they sent a link in the email where you were able to go back and look at your entire history of what kind of, you know, the history of DVDs that you gotten. And I have gotten something like 1,100 DVDs mailed to my various living places since 2008 when I first got my account. Um, and I can see like when I was watching them and there's like a for a whole like two years, all I got delivered was wrestling DVDs, best of compilations, old WW events, old TNA events, old like WCW events. If they had them release them on DVD, it was just all like I was like, oh, yeah, there was a two years of my life where all I did was get DVDs mailed to my house and I would watch them as soon as possible. And then I would mail them back and I'd get them again. And it was how I basically ended up watching a lot of historical wrestling you know, I didn't have like a an XWT account um, or like I wasn't torrenting these huge files like other people. Like I was getting my DVDs through Netflix um, and I could see a phase where I shift from getting almost all WWE DVDs to getting TNA DVDs. And it shift aligns with like where my tastes were in wrestling. And at some point I just became disillusioned with WWE and I really wanted to watch TNA. Um, and it's it's funny to think about that I guess in hindsight, because eventually I I gave up on TNA, right? You know, probably a, a year or two into the Hogan Bischoff era, um, which is probably you know one of the huge lasting leg legacies of the company. Um, but just kind of interesting, like going through like my personal history with TNA and kind of how that relates to like my personal like adolescence and maturity. Not like obviously as a person, but really as a wrestling fan as well. And your your need to rely on physical media. Which was the same for me, except it was the Don West brown bag specials, where Don West would get on TNA today, like twice a week, and give you the hard sell on his brown bag special that had not one, not two, not three DVDs. Dixie wouldn't let him do this, but he's going to sneak in a fifth as well, just so you get all these DVDs. And like that's how I got a bunch of the like the TNA pay per views, a bunch of the the TNA compilation sets. That because when I jumped on board with TNA, as I said, is around end of two thousand six. So that's the four years of the company, two years of which are very highly critically acclaimed that I completely missed out on. So I was just like, I have to go back and watch all this stuff. So I was like, give me my best of AJ Styles DVD and my best of Raven DVD and my that unbreakable 2005 DVD, many of which I still have on a shelf to my left over here, uh, all still sitting there uh, for our uh, physical media freaks who still have physical things in our houses as opposed yeah. to everything on streaming or on hard drives. Well, and he, um, I, no, I remember the, so the brown bag is a, uh... The brown bag is um uh, really under advertising it because they gave me a full blown string bag uh, that's autographed by Don West. I believe I got two of them and I got two of the string bags and I still keep my basketball sneakers. I keep my basketball sneakers and some other supplies like a, like an air pump and stuff uh, in the trunk of my car and it's in the TNA uh, string bag that Don West sent me and it's autographed by him. It says Don West on it. And so I still, it's still like, I still bring it with me whenever I go play basketball. It's in my car right now. Um, but yeah, and that was like, again, like cheap merchandising. And as a kid, like um, I was a teenager that really just wanted to watch as much wrestling as possible. Like, like you said, like a tremendous deal, like five DVDs, you'd get a shirt. I remember I got a Bobby Lashley shirt and this was after Bobby Lashley had left the company for the first time. So it was definitely a shirt they were looking to get rid of. Um, and it was a great value, right? You would get 
Now with streaming, it would not be considered a great value, but think about how much content you were getting for like 25 bucks. Yeah, that's the thing. It's actually just dead stock. It's like, we need to clear out these DVDs we can't sell on this Bobby Lashley shirt nobody wants. So it's, we'll throw it all together, 25 bucks, and it seems like you're getting a great deal, but they're actually just clearing out dead stock, and it's great. <laughs> it's, it's like brilliant. It really is brilliant. I went to a live event uh, probably around the same time. So I'd say, let's say probably around 2011. Uh, it was right after Bully Ray had turned heel, uh, and he had become Bully Ray. Um Yes, that was end of 2010, start of 2011. Yeah. yeah. So right around that, I went to a house show that they ran in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And midway through the, you know, during intermission or whatever, Don West comes out to the ring and he's got like a huge cardboard box and he gets in the ring and he starts throwing DVDs around like they are Frisbees. Like uh, how the, the 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 genius Lanny Popo just died. He had like the Frisbee gimmick where he would throw Frisbees into the crowd. It was literally just like that, except it was Don West throwing away all of these DVDs. And I caught one. I forget what it was. It was like probably like, you know, like Turning Point 2009 or something like that. But he was just flinging these DVDs. I'm like, what other wrestling show are you going to where you're going to get a DVD thrown at you uh, and you can catch it? And you're right. It was probably just overstock that they needed to get rid of. But it was a really like, I remember, I'll always remember that. It's like one of my most memorable moments at a live wrestling show was Don West threw me a DVD like it was a Frisbee. Did you catch it? Did it hit you in the head? <laughs> did I catch it? Did I catch it in the air? Um, I can't remember if I caught it in the air. It was, uh, I'm not going to say that this was a highly attended house show. So I don't think I was fighting off a bunch of people uh, for the DVD, like a foul ball at a baseball game. Um, but uh it was, I I still have the DVD. It's probably at my parents' house somewhere. Um, but I, I definitely wouldn't have gotten rid of it. Um, anyway, that's another thing that's kind of forgotten about the the house show experience, because like their house shows were so much fun, and it was always the like the the point of contrast. Where like everyone would go to a TNA house show and come back being like, they were so interactive. You know, you got to meet the wrestlers. Don West was selling you merchandise. JB's a great host. There's great action. The wrestlers seem to be having a great time. And then you'd watch the TV and it's like nothing like any of that at all. And it, that was always like the talking point for years. It's like, oh, TNA house shows are one of the best things in the business. You'll have an absolute hell of a time. Like as I remember some of their European tour shows, even the non-televised ones are some of the best shows I went to. Some of the most fun matches, some of the best atmospheres I've been in at wrestling shows. And then you watch a TV and it's like dead in front of the impact zone with five minute television matches that nobody cares about. It's like, how is the, how are these like, it's one of those things where you look at the company, it's like, you see the side of the company that is great and the wrestlers are allowed to have creative freedom and they're doing great stuff. And then the, like when the TV and the writing and all the meddling kind of gets on board and say, like, Oh, how do you mess all this up so much? Yeah. We, um, yeah, it's one of those things. Like, well, people say that about WWE. I have, I've actually never been to a WWE house show in my life, but people say that about WWE house shows. Like, even now, like you go there and the atmosphere is way better than it would be if you're going to a TV taping, and all the wrestlers are having fun and they're all working like a different style for the house shows, and it's like a, a tremendous experience, much better than going to like a, a TV event. Um, the first wrestling show I ever went to was a TNA show. Um, I went when I was probably like in sixth grade. Um, and I'm trying to remember, I remember a lot of the people that they advertised for being on the show were not on the show. Um, but I do remember the main event was, was Jeff Jarrett versus Christian Cage for the, the world title. And Jeff Jarrett was the champion at the time. And like the finish of the match is like Christian Cage pins Jeff Jarrett and he, he gets the title. Everyone thinks he's won the title. And then Jeremy Borash was just like, 
oh, because Jeff Jarrett was complaining to Jeremy Borash and then Jeremy Borash gets on the house mic and he says, oh, because I, you know, forgot to say it was a world title match at the start of the match. It actually wasn't a world title match. So Jeff Jarrett's still the champion. It's just like this shitty, dusty finish, reverse dusty finish, I guess, because it was the heel retaining the title. Um, but I just remember, I remember that as a kid and I don't think I ever went to a TNA house show again until that one in Plymouth. <laughs> they ripped you off. Right. Uh, your, your big world title change on the random house show. It's like, God damn it. You pulled the rug out from under me. I was an 11 year old kid. I thought I had seen, cause, and I kind of knew they won't do a title change cause it's not on TV. I knew that, but then Christian Gosh darn it, he pinned Jeff Jarrett for the title and everyone popped and he was like in the crowd celebrating with the title. And then like Jeff Jarrett's complaining and Jared Boris was like, actually, Jeff Jarrett's still the champion because I forgot to say it was a world champion. And then Jeff Jarrett's like strutting across the ring with the title. And it's just one of those things. It's funny. I'll always remember that. Um, it's a but, little thing called heat. Yeah. For the next time they were going to be in Lowell, Massachusetts, which I don't think they ever were ever again. But uh, <laughs> uh I wanted to, the reason, uh, my, my, I want to get to my thought here that I had, um, and I, I'm going to, I want to, I want to weigh it out to you. And I think it will lead to a very interesting discussion, kind of talking about TNA's history and legacy, but I'll start with this as kind of like an assumed truth in the sense of, I believe the following is a very commonly held opinion. I believe a commonly held opinion about TNA and impact, especially the beginning of the company is that. The company tried too hard to be like WWE or maybe WCW or maybe ECW and was very slow to embrace the, the next era of wrestling. They didn't embrace independent wrestling and the style that was popping up there. And they tried too hard to be like WWE or like WCW and relied on old wrestlers from those promotions at the expense oftentimes with organic homegrown talent that came up through the U.S. independence and other means. Um, do you believe that's like a commonly held opinion? Not that it's right or wrong, but it's a commonly held opinion that TNA didn't capitalize on kind of the changing four face of pro wrestling in this country and instead was trying too hard to live in the past. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when you look at like the people involved, it makes a lot of sense why they did. And that like when you have Russo and when you have Jarrett, when you have all these people who came from WWE or WCW, they do what they know. It's very, very rare in wrestling that you get people who come from one place and go to another place and do something entirely different than the place they came from. Very rare. Mm -hmm. Everyone does what they know. You see it over and over again when people jump from one company to another, especially in a creative capacity. Whether you want to talk about like Russo or Bischoff or John Gaborik or Bruce Pritchard or any of these people who have worked across multiple companies, they always end up doing what they know. They don't go to the, to the other company and say, let's do something fun and new and different. It's like, well, there we did this. So here we'll do that. And I do think like when no matter what the first major company to actually stay around for longer than five minutes after the death of WCW was going to be, whether it was World Wrestling All-Stars, whether that actually caught on, whether Jimmy Hart's XWF actually caught on or whether it was TNA, like it's not a ridiculous business proposition to be like when WCW closed, there were three million fans or whatever that still watched WCW every week. And those people don't seem to have moved on to watch Raw. So... If we present a wrestling product that looks like the wrestling product that they used to watch with some of the stars from the wrestling product they used to watch, maybe they'll come back. 
Like that's, I think, a pretty reasonable principle to launch a company off of. It's like there was one very successful number two, very briefly number one sized company in the US. Let's try and capture that market again. And in when it was increasingly clear, those people were gone and they were never coming back and they disappeared in March 2001. They just vanished off the face of the earth, maybe occasionally showing up at NWA shows to watch Tyrus. Other than that, they're gone for good. And you still still saw people chase that over and over and over again for years and years and years after it was clear those people were gone. And I think that was the problem. Like in 2001, 2002, 2003, fair enough. WCW fresh in the memory. Again, lots of fans that were went to those shows, very successful company. There's some of those people you can win back. Then when you're still talking like 2015, 2016, 2017, maybe even a little 2023, you're still like, let's do what was successful in, in 1997 because those fans might come back. They're in their 50s now, but they might come back. This is the time they'll come back. So uh, I, I, I agree. That's a long-winded answer to your question. I agree that that is the general sentiment, and I think there is a, there's a decent reason why it was the case, at least at the start. Right, and I think when we look at like TNA's history, and in hindsight, that's kind of the general takeaway in the sense of, oh, well, you know, they try, they had a chance to be something different and kind of usher in a new era of wrestling, and they were too hung up on the past, and that's what cost them the uh, chance of becoming like a real major significant player with long-term sustained success. Um, and I think my kind of thought that I had was, you know, that's really unfair because if we go back into a time machine to 2002 and even, you know, subsequently 2003, 2004, 2005, 2006, nobody knew what a successful non-WW wrestling product was supposed to look like. The closest examples you had were WCW and ECW. Um, but the idea that like, you know, be copying independent wrestling and, and and pushing smaller wrestlers and creating your own new stars that appeal to a new generation of fans and wrestle a more athletic style and things like that. Things that I think a lot of people wish that TNA would present would have presented harder than they did. Um, nobody knew that that was the right way to go. Um, you know, it really think about the time it took from WCW closing to like ring of honor really taking off as like a, a significant company or like new japan pro wrestling in the united states kind of taking off we're talking at least 10 years since wcw closed but even as many as like 15 years before we really start seeing like what a a new generation of a wrestling product looks like in america TNA in 2002 doesn't have that blueprint. They have no idea what's going to be successful. Most of the people that they have involved, like you mentioned, are people who have come from these other companies and they're going to present what they know. And I think it's kind of unfair historically to be like, well, they dropped the ball because they didn't know what they had. And it's like, well, nobody knew that was the right way to do wrestling back then. Like nobody knew what to present as a wrestling product. Um you know, after WCW and ECW closed, it took years and years of kind of trial and error in TNA, but also on the US Indies with all these different styles and, you know, being floated out. And it took a, basically a whole generation of new wrestlers to come of age and gain experience for, I think, like the modern day indie wrestling, new generation of wrestling style to really, you know, solidify itself in the in the latter half of the 2010s. Up until, you know, right after in the early 2000s, no one knew what to do. And I think TNA maybe doesn't get enough slack in that regard and that nobody really knew how to present a wrestling product at that time. And you touched briefly on what I think is a big part of it as well in 2002. The level of talent isn't there. 
It's just no. not. Like when you look at the, the leftovers from WCW who aren't signed to WWE at the, at like June 02, you have Sting, who would be a good full-time star if you could afford him. You have Randy Savage, who has been washed for 10 years. <laughs> he has not had a good match in a long time. You'd have like Luger. You'd have like Sid. Like none of those guys are other than Sting. Sting's the only guy there you can hang a company on. And then you look at the indies, you look at the likes of Styles and Loki and Daniels and Joe and the Briscoes and all the guys in the indies who are very like raw potential talented, but they're not television star talented at that stage. Like when you look at all those wrestlers compared to the same version of them, even three years later in 2005, it's complete night and day. So it's like you don't have ready-made indie acts in 02 and you don't have main event headliners who are reliable. Like when you look at the people they did bring in, they had Jarrett, of course, company founder, company built around. You have Scott Hall, who you who is a big star, a great worker, great promo, can't rely upon to hang a company on for all the reasons that are very well documented. And Ken Shamrock, whose heart never really seemed to be in it. And after that, it's your like raw potential guys like Styles or like good journeyman hands like Jerry Lynn, who will have good matches, but like Jerry Lynn was never a big star. And that the talent just wasn't there in 02. It really wasn't. Like there, there's no person TNA could have signed that they really didn't. Like they never used Brian Danielson for whatever reason. But even if they did, it would be no different. <laughs> you know, TNA would be absolutely no different if they did book Brian Danielson in 2002. Yeah, like that next generation of indie stars are like babies in 2002, like you mentioned. Like the, I don't think I don't think Mark Briscoe was 18 in 2002. Like, um, and a lot of these guys, like you said, Samoa Joe and you know AJ's on the first you know TNA show, um, so it's not like he wasn't in the company, but you're he's not you know he's not a main event star. And there had been no a lot of these guys, like you can mention Samoa Joe, but someone like AJ Styles or someone like Brian Danielson there most people would assume that those people couldn't be big tv stars because they didn't have the right look and they weren't big enough um nobody had shattered that class ceiling that would take years and in fairness to them first x division champion aj styles first tag team champion aj styles they knew what they had like they they did try it's like it's not that's one of those talking points i really really hate that people are like, TNA wasted AJ Styles or TNA didn't know what they had with AJ Styles. He was the first of their three champions and won all three belts within the first year of the company. They knew full well what they had with AJ, whether they always used him to their his fullest, whether he was always in the best spots, whether they had like full confidence in him, very different questions. But they knew from day zero, not even day one, because he was one of the first people they signed to a contract. They knew from day zero, AJ was the guy. But you even watch AJ in 02 versus AJ in 05, and it's still, he's half the wrestler. Even then in 02, you see, it's one of the, the nice little things to watch through those first few years of TNA, to watch AJ develop from that real, like, raw potential. This guy could be one of the best in the world. And by the time you get to 2005, it's like, oh, this guy is one of the best in the world. That's a fun thing to watch develop. But in 02, he wasn't there. Even in 05, he probably wasn't all the way there because his promos were terrible. Like, absolutely abysmal. But, yeah, this talent's not there. It, and... Like no matter how good the booking is, no matter how good the business model is, which it wasn't very, uh, that was also by necessity though, because they couldn't get TV. Like a lot of the way TNA was, was by necessity. And then when you look at the creative approach, which is the thing you can like uh, beat them with a stick with most fairly, in that the creative wasn't good. 
Like it wasn't. It wasn't like you know they they had this this great creatively fulfilling show that was great to watch, and they just did couldn't find a market. It's like no, they had a, a really inconsistent show that had a bunch of like carryovers from the the crash TV era that nobody really wanted to pay for on pay per view, like. But even if the creative was absolutely knocking out of the park, the talent probably wasn't there to actually launch a proper number two without hanging on for dear life for three years until Spike TV happened to come along. Right. And even talent that was there, like people had a really limited view on who could be uh, a big star. And people like, like you said, Jeff Jarrett's there and Jarrett has credibility as, you know, he was, a, you know, he was a, I don't know like how I want to describe his star power in WWF, but he was a star in WWF. He was a pushed wrestler uh, and he won the Intercontinental Championship a bunch of times. And he obviously was a multiple time WCW world champion. I don't think that those are like the greatest title reigns in the history of pro wrestling when he was WCW champion, but at least that still had an element of credibility to him. But you're right about like, who are the other ringers that you can bring in to kind of build the company around? And you mentioned Sting is around, but didn't seem like he was that interested in wrestling for a few years. And you could say this seemed like Hulk Hogan was technically around. Um, or was he? Was Hogan back in back in WWF by the time uh, TNA started? Yeah, because it would have been shortly after the Rock match. And then he did leave in 03, and they did try to get him. And that's a right. whole saga in and of itself. Uh, the whole, like, we're building to a Hogan-Jarrett match. Hogan is messing us around. We sent uh, Jarrett to Japan to hit Hogan with a guitar to set up a match that then Hogan puts on the long finger and never and never ends up happening because he's Hulk Hogan. He was really just using TNA for leverage to try and get back into WWE. Yeah. And if we think about the, in general, when, when I think about the good parts of TNA, I think about, in like AJ Styles and the X Division and those wrestlers are, are a good example of, you know, TNA looking at what was on the indies or looking at what indie wrestlers were available and bringing them in and giving them a push. And you can say that about Samoa Joe. You can say that about Chris Sabin. You can say that about Christopher Daniels. You can say that about a whole slew of kind of like the very memorable, almost iconic wrestlers in, in TNA's history. Um, but the indies in 2002 are not nearly as kind of robust and as defined as they would be even by like 2005 and 2006. Um, I remember once talking to a uh, indie wrestler, later promoter, um, who I will not name because they have since been canceled. Um, but I remember they were telling they t were telling me what it was like being an indie wrestler at that time, and they said, "When you're an indie wrestler at the time, every promotion just wanted to be ECW. So every promotion tried as hard to be ECW as possible. They all ran the the twenty three hundred arena, and then they would they would hold up a banner and they would." It would say the ECW arena is now the XPW arena or whatever indie was, was doing it. And nobody had really any original creative vision. It was all just, you know, uh, everyone trying to mimic uh, ECW and TNA in a lot, in a, in a lot of senses is trying to do that as well, but they're also more focused on WCW because what ECW was to kind of be this godfather of independent wrestling wcw certainly was as far as the godfather of being a major non-wwe professional wrestling organization and still to this day with AEW, and there are a lot of parallels um even though we're 20 years removed from the foundation of of, of tna and the kind of landscape that that company came into there's still a lot of the prevailing logic of Oh, you know, AEW needs to be like WCW or they need to be like WWE if they really want to be big time and they need WWE stars and they need to present a product the way WWE does. And there's this kind of idea that any kind of original, I uh, you know, ideas or creative 
is going to fail at attracting a lot of fans because it's not coming from WWE or it's not coming from WCW. That still exists today and certainly existed throughout TNA's entire uh, existence and still exists for TNA today because they're still around and they're still trying to fight that, what their image is. And I think it flies in the face of when you look at, well, what caused companies to take off? It's never like a set formula. You do things certain ways. It's always, we broke out and did a new thing. Like even the, like you already, the attitude here was derivative of what ECW were doing at the time, but ECW were doing a new thing. Nitro took off because it was a new thing. Like it wasn't just, let's repeat the same ideas. It, like if they repeated what worked in the 80s in the middle of the 90s, the attitude here at WCW, WWF taking off never would have happened. Like they tried to do that in the early 90s. And there's a reason like it nearly drove WWE into the ground. It's like you couldn't do the Hulk Hogan, say your prayers and take your vitamin shtick in the 90s. He'd get booed because that's not where the 90s were. In the same way where the 90s were wasn't where the mid 2000s were and where the mid 2000s were isn't where, where we are now. It's like you have to create a wrestling product that meets the cultural moment. It's not this like set of values or set of things the way these things used to be. Wrestling was always hottest when it was like meeting where the culture was with its own kind of spin on it. It's like with the Hulk Hogan, with the, the Hulkamania era, with the Attitude era. And then there's probably a big reason we haven't had really a third era after that, because no one has really found that like meeting where the culture is moment. Yeah, and that's not just that's not just a rule for wrestling. That's a rule for all types of pop culture entertainment, right? The, what are the, the most successful music acts in history are usually people who have pushed music in a new medium. They're artists who are experimenting with a new style or a new sound, and it takes off. You could say film, like the most successful directors and are people who were pushing boundaries and doing new things and experimenting with different stuff during different generations of, of filmmaking. Um, you can say that pretty, mo pretty much about any form of pop culture or art, and pro wrestling is no exception. And you're right, like in the last 20 years, we've been living in this era where a lot of people just want to think that the best way to, to grow something is to repeat things from the past. And that really has never existed in any form of, of art and entertainment. Yes, there's always nostalgia. Yes, people like being reminded of things when they were younger. But at the end of the day, if you're looking to build a new product and, and create a new boom period or whatever, it is going to come with new original thought and creativity. Um, and it's not going to be focused on what was going on in the past. Like Hulk Hogan was, was radically different than Bob Backlund. And that's kind of one of the reasons why WWF took off in the 80s is because the product they presented was radically different than the product that had been existing in pro wrestling. Um, but at some point, WWE decided that they weren't going to use that philosophy anymore and they were just going to try to be this machine that uh, remembered the good old days. Uh, and that's, that explains a lot of their product over the last you know 20 years. And it's worked out frustratingly well for them, which is the upsetting part. <laughs> Or as much yeah, as I mean, they, they, they don't adapt and they don't change and they don't respond to failure and they still get bigger TV deals and make more money than ever. That's no justice in the world, Jesse. Well, I, I was I was talking about this the other day because like they're, with WWE, as they've produced, a, you know, a shit product for, for a long time, there's always, even though they were hugely successful and always signing bigger television deals and they're always making more money each year. There is always this like kind of solace in the fact that they were slowly losing fans and that eventually the TV money would be tied more consequentially into, well, the fact that your, tele your audience is rapidly declining and, you know, you have no wrestlers who are over. Um, but for some, for whatever reason, and there's plenty of ideas that I've discussed on WrestleNomics and, and 
everyone can have their own take, but for whatever reason, over the last year or two, their business is way up. Fan interest is is is, is the highest it's been in like over a decade. Uh, whatever they've done, they've figured it out, and they're now you know as 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 successful and powerful than ever before. Um, despite the fact that I still think that their product is largely the same, uh, and not particularly good. I think it's just Peacock. That's yeah, my Brand- theory. Brandon Thurston is a big. Sup- believer in that like making the pay-per-views more accessible to people who are maybe sampling the product um leads to them i think i think the optics of putting triple h in charge over vince mcmahon uh allowed for renewed fan optimism that had been just beaten out of a large portion of the fan base um for a long time it's one of the key reasons that they're very protective of the idea that triple h is still the number one man in creative and vince is just doing something very small making small changes here and there um but uh, this is not a WWE podcast. I wanted to get back, but uh, to talk about impact. And I want to talk about, I would say like, if you were to look at the history of TNA, is there one like kind of critical moment where you think they could have seized more ground than they ended up doing because they were held back by maybe some outdated philosophy, maybe some over-reliance on faded star power. Is there one key moment where you're thinking like, this was a huge opportunity for them to swoop in and they just kind of dropped the ball because they weren't ready to take that leap? In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards, and yeah, you can open it, and look, it's going to be junk. You're, you, you know what I mean? Like You know what you're probably going to get in those. Maybe you find that fun, and sometimes I do. Sometimes I like just opening up cards and saying, oh, hey, look at some random cards or whatever, but if you're really in this game to, to find value and find particular cards... It sucks to have to buy these mystery packs, and it ends up being, you know, almost nothing. You know, nothing of value. Not with Arena Club. You can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading. So you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% 
off. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash VOW net arenaclub.com slash VOW net for 10% off your first purchase on arena club. And we thank them for sponsoring the voices of wrestling podcast network. What's going on guys. This is rich from the flagship podcast here on the voice of wrestling podcast network if i could have a moment of your time i'd like to tell you about one of our sponsors eufy video lock eufy video lock is a smart lock a 2k camera and a doorbell all three in one offering you triple security so you can have everything in one device rather than installing many pieces on your front door but it's not just for security Eufy Video Lock is also for convenience. No more concerns about losing keys, and you can assign passwords to your family members and see them coming back home via the integrated cameras. Some other great features we love about the Eufy Video Lock is it is easy to install and set up with just a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. Keyless entry, no more fumbling for keys when your hands are full. You never have to worry about kids losing keys or passing among renters. You also have 0.3 second, 0.3 second fingerprint recognition and one second unlocking again 0.3 seconds it's going to recognize your fingerprints and in one second it's going to unlock and with the ai self-learning chip embedded the more you use it the more accurate it will be also no battery anxiety you have a rechargeable battery in there that could last around four months and you will get a low battery notification before it runs out uh, passcode unlocking a remote control with the 2k clear sight see who's at your door and control from anywhere through the Eufy app. With enhanced night vision, you can have optimized view even in the evening. You can also secure your package delivery by view and two-way audio. And then best of all, no monthly fee. A bunch of other brands out there are going to charge you a monthly fee. You have your recordings locally and you never have to pay for storage. Customer service, Eufy's got you handled as well. They're on standby for you 24-7 so you can enjoy a worry-free experience with an 18-month warranty all backed by their professional customer service team. Contact them anytime by telephone, email, or live chat. Personally, as a homeowner, I love my Eufy video lock. I have the ability to see what's going on when I'm not home, when packages have has arrived, and, and really the thing I love the most about it, the ease of being able to lock and unlock my doors without having to fumble with my keys and reach in my pocket or wait, no, crap, they're in my backpack, all that sort of stuff. All this is happening while my dogs are barking at me. You know what? Not anymore with the Eufy video lock. I touch it. 0.3 second fingerprint recognition, one second doors unlocked much much easier so if you want to jump on board with eufy video lock search eufy video lock that is e u f y video lock again that's eufy video lock e u f y video lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your door I always say that if I could reach into the past of wrestling history and change one moment, it would be I would go back to September 2006 and I would say, Vince Russo, you're not coming back. Go away. <laughs> and I would have Samoa Joe win the world title at Bound for Glory. Because like that, I feel like, is like the, the branching path of TNA as a project where you have Kurt Angle coming in. Like you, uh, you've added Sting full time. You've added Christian Cage full time, and now you have Kurt Angle coming in, uh, a real deal main event headline WWE act in the prime of his career. Regardless of everything going around about his like physical and mental health, he is still a tremendous performer. 
You have Kurt Angle coming into your company. And what, who do you think to bring back into the fold to write Kurt Angle's creative? Vince Russo. <laughs> so, like, that is, I think, the moment where you see, like, there's a version of TNA where Russo doesn't come back in that period. You just have Joe beat Jarrett, and then you spend a year building to Angle and Joe instead of doing it in his first pay-per-view. And I think TNA ends up looking very different. Because like you, you come off the back of that like booking regime that was the committee, the committee post Dusty, which was like led the most rapid expansion in TNA history. When you consider they went from FSN, where they were paying to get about about one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand viewers, to Spike, where they rapidly gave, went from like eight nine hundred thousand viewers on a Saturday night, and eventually to over the course of the next two years, a prime time slot two hours on Thursdays on Spike. Like that's and you you take that that the team that did that that helped you through that moment and produce some ga- damn good television as they did it, and then you're like you guys take a back seat, we're bringing in Vinny Rue and he's gonna book Kurt Angle, like that for me that's like the the sliding doors moment that's the one where you're like if I could reach in and change it and I think TNA would have been better off substantially if you did change it and you kept that booking committee that was there at the time with Kurt Angle being added to that equation. TNA would look very different heading into 2007. And it's, um, yeah, like you mentioned, like we go back to 2002 and you kind of mentioned like, you know, guys like Samoa Joe and guys like AJ Styles, they're not ready to be made of an axe at that point in time. They are really have raw potential, but they're not ready. By the time we get to 2006, obviously Samoa Joe had already established himself as kind of a main event act. Um but that was the time where you're in, in the independence had progressed far enough and you had um you know more interesting available talents that had more experience in the indies. There was a lot of people you could have brought in. Um, and they did bring in a lot of different people over that time period too. So it's not like they never brought these people in, but there was a lot more young talent available by 2006 to continue to build around, in addition to guys like Samoa Joe and AJ Styles becoming more established. And then at just at some point over the next four or five years. They just kind of keep going back to, to you know, Sting or, you know, they bring in Christian Cage and I have no problems with what they did with Christian Cage, but it's just another XW. It is an XWWE guy. You know, they bring in Kevin Nash. They bring in, you know, Scott Steiner is there. Booker T comes in. Like you just are now have all these guys who are overshadowing the new, young, exciting guys who are hitting their prime. And I remember, especially for me, like as, as an adolescent, that just isn't what I wanted to see. I think like a real breaking point for me came when I went I went to Slammiversary, maybe Slammiversary 2011, I want to say. It was in Boston. Um, and the main event was Bully Ray versus Sting in the middle of the Aces and Eights storyline. 2013. So this is 2013, yeah. So this is, this is longer than that. Um, but uh, I remember just being like, you know, these I men, both of these guys, like the combined age of guy, guy, these guys is like 95. And it just, I, I, I don't even remember if they had a good match or a bad match. I remember it was like a street fight and they were ended up, you know, ripping up part of the canvas and things like that. But I just remember being like, it's so frustrating to watch just these old guys wrestle. And I don't know if that's ages to me, but as a, as a teenager, I was like, I want to see what's new and what's young and what's exciting. And I just, I don't care about these guys who have a very limited future. 
um, as a pro wrestler. And I think there were probably a lot of fans that felt the same way in the sense of even if the performances of both Sting and Bully Ray in a vacuum are good, it's missing the time and place aspect that's so critical to good pro wrestling booking, which at that time probably would have been looking at who was available on the U.S. independence and also people like AJ Styles where you could put them in a bigger position to succeed. And instead they continue to rely on guys who made their names in other companies and who were on the back half of their careers. And it just was that mistake was made over and over and over again. And eventually just turned me off the product. And you just look at the the string of creative regimes, like Russo takes over in September 06. And like, obviously there's more voices in the room than just Vince Russo. It's, you don't always pile all the blame on one person, but it's largely his creative direction for the next three or four years. Then you have the, the Hogan Bischoff regime, which is a disaster for so many reasons. Then you have like John Gaborik coming in, who's implementing like the weird FCW light approach. And one of the, like, nobody talks about TNA's talent recruitment post like 2007 and it's one of like the biggest weaknesses of the company because they go from like building a company around like what were the hot indie acts they did hire a bunch of them they hired alex shelley they hired strong and aries for a while until all the ring of honor falling out stuff happened seven different times they hired joe they hired stars they hired daniels they hired like a bunch of like the hot indie acts and then they reached like 06 and 07 and they did use what they had. Like they they did make Joe world champion. They did make AJ world champion. They did elevate the likes of Storm and Rude. But then like they went nowhere near Kevin Steen or El Generico or Johnny Gargano or anybody who came up on the indies in the next 10 years. Like they just went nowhere near those guys with, with some small exceptions like the Young Bucks who then were gone within 18 months. And one of their biggest success stories was bringing back Austin Aries. So you'd be like... Well, this Austin Aries guy did very well, won the world title, big moment. Surely we should then look again out to the indies and look at the guys who are stars at the moment and bring those guys in. Nope. It's more like Crimson and Gunner and Anarchia. And as you said, the likes of going back to the Sting well for the seventh time or going back to the Kurt Angle well for the seventh time. It's like, I don't think people talk enough about just how bad DNA's talent recruitment got, particularly in the Hogan Bischoff era, where they they just they hired nobody good. Like and that was nobody, a, and that was such a rich time for talent. And WWE wasn't looking at a lot of that talent. Yeah, and everyone talks about how WWE doesn't, which is true. Like until like the the Triple H era of NXT started coming along, and they in order to feed his beast, he needed to sign everybody under the sun in what 2013 ish when that kind of started. But like even in the years preceding that, the reason like the indies were so stocked is because TNA weren't looking at those people either. Like El Generico would do a dark match and you wouldn't sign them. What kind of crazy company are you? Hey, the Young Bucks were in TNA. Yeah, Generation Me. <laughs> Everyone's they, favorite TNA tag team. But that's I mean, that's that's how I found out who the Young Bucks were, was <laughs> I saw these guys uh you know these these guys that they had who were doing stuff in the ring that i had never seen before and i had to see more of them yeah and uh, i imagine like the tna tv exposure did help them post tna and where they could use like the well actually they kind of worked heel in pwg after that didn't they so they were like the tna guys which is kind of funny that they turned heel because they were in tna but that kind of tells you everything you need to know about that era of tna doesn't it just the idea of being there turned the young bucks right. heel and they and, and you're right about like you know they never went after you know john moxley that I know of. He did uh, a dark match in 2009. Yeah. So, well, yeah. So he's there and it like, wasn't a secret that he was really talented. It wasn't, that wasn't like a thing. I mean, did they ever bring in um, Tyler Black? 
He lost one squash match on Impact to LAX. Yeah, so all these guys are somehow on the radar screen, but you're right about just like, um, the, I, I have never thought that, but that's a very good point as far as like, the, like there's all this talent that's available. Um, and it's not, like I said, it's not 2002. It's not like all these guys are, are 18 years old. These are guys with years of, of independent wrestling experience. And I don't like, you mentioned like Gunner and Crimson and, and those kind of people is part of that because they're looking at who would WWE push as a top star. And it wouldn't necessarily maybe be, ironically enough, it wouldn't be someone like a Kevin Steen or an El Generico, but instead it's going to be someone with big muscles like Gunner um, or Bram or Rob Terry or any of these other people that they brought in over that time period. I think it just goes back to when you look at like Eric Bischoff has a terrible life for talent, which is funny given like he did legitimately expose the national audience to some tremendous talent, but then never pushed any of them. But kind of inadvertently, look, yeah. Yeah, when you look at all the people that Eric Bischoff kind of picked as a guy, it was always that kind of bland, muscly guy. It's like the power plant trainee template, basically, is what Eric Bischoff's vision of a guy is. And that's the kind of person they picked every time in TNA. And it never worked out. Until, as I said, they brought back Austin Aries and that worked out. And that still didn't click it in their brain. That it's like, oh, these guys are good and can become main event acts. It's like, nope, let's just try again with Rob Terry. Can you give us a brief history of the TJP manic uh, suicide character push that happened? Oh, dear. So do you want to go all the way back to the start? Ah, uh, so so can I can I, let me can I half describe it and you tell me when I'm wrong? Um, sure. Because it, it is kind of. It is kind of like I remember it just being as like a weird indictive error when we talk about so suicide is the character from the video game, correct? Yes, voiced by Loki in the video game. Well, Loki has nothing to do with the character, right? Um, so uh, he is a uh, so he's so he start he's he's created for the video game, I guess. Um, it's like a modern he's day. Protag- yeah, he's the protagonist of the story mode. It's like a modern game. day Mil Mascaris, right? Like Mil Mascaris was created as a movie character. And then became a wrestling star. And this is this is like just like this, and just as successful as Mil Mascaris was. <laughs> I was gonna um, say this is the first time in existence suicide has been compared to Mil Mascaris. But that's like how Mil Mascaris became a thing, was that like after El Santo, they're like, we need a movie star, so we'll make this guy, we'll create this character for this guy, and he'll be in movies, but then he'll also be a wrestler. Um they kind of reverse engineered it. But uh so and then so suicide is is obviously this masked character that's like masked head to toe and he's portrayed by various people i believe he was portrayed by uh, frankie kazarian on a semi-consistent basis and i believe he was also portrayed by kiyoshi uh at different times if i remember yeah. correctly a lot uh, of people have worn the suit because it, it started off as a, char- a character for frankie like frankie yeah. went off tv for a while he was going to come back as suicide except he tore I think it's tricep. He got injured anyway before Suicide was meant to debut. So like the first couple of months of Suicide is actually Christopher Daniels. <laughs> Christopher Daniels plays the role of Suicide and, and until Frankie returns from injury and then Frankie plays the role. Has anyone played any weird, any more like uh, hooded or masked characters that he kind of wasn't supposed to play at first than Christopher Daniels? What a yeah, fascinating seems to be his specialty. Yeah. yeah. Um, and like the weird thing about like counting title reigns is that the suicide that won the exhibition title was Christopher Daniels, but then Frankie took over. So, like, there's that weird thing of, well, which one of them was champion? Is it, do you accredit it to Daniels or do you accredit it to Kazarian? Yeah. Many, many men have wore the mask. It's a, um, but, uh, but at some point, TJP comes in, TJ Perkins, who had been in the company 
at various times. And I know he had wrestled when he was using the Puma persona um, during some of their international stuff. Uh, and so he is, he is a suicide character, um, except they changed suicide's name to Manic for some mm-hmm. reason. And then at some point they decide to like unmask him. Uh, yeah, so, so there's this, this strange thing. In the middle of 2013, Austin Aries was trying to do the option C thing again, and there was an X Division title match that involved suicide. Austin Aries beat up TJP in theory, who was playing suicide at the time because they brought the character suicide back. So Austin Aries beat up suicide, stole the suicide costume, won the X Division title in order to catch an option C, but then dastardly revealed himself to be Austin Aries. And he's like, ooh, this is my plan. Chris Saban ended up winning the exhibition title back, so it wasn't even that important. But when they revealed that Ares was suicide, like he stole the suit, then Hulk Hogan walks out with an unmasked TJP being like, wait a minute, brother, this guy's suicide, not you. You shouldn't be exhibition champion, brother. So that's when TJP is unmasked, revealed to be canonically suicide. And then he becomes manic. But then he's also like unmasked a lot and like... For some reason, Hulk Hogan took him as like his personal pet project where he was going to like put him over on TV a lot. Like this guy's the future. And it's like, TJP's the future of of, of Impact Wrestling. Um, the whole thing I remember just being like this weird, out of touch, bizarre scenario. And I didn't even remember it in full. And I forgot about the Austin Aries angle now that you reminded me of it. Um, and there was also just something weird seeing, you know, TJP, who's like got this youngish boyish face and he's like wearing the, the that that's exposed, but he's also wearing like the crazy suicide costume. And it was it was very uh unconvincing, I guess. Um, and it was just I remember that being just like a, a kind of uh, a symbol of kind of this company. Not only do they they actually have like a youngish indie wrestler, but they kind of have no idea how to present them as a star. And, and they're choosing to do it in like the most complicated storyline possible that fans aren't going to care about. Yeah. And if you flash forward all the way through to 2020, when Suicide and Manic teamed up, which made absolutely no sense within TNA canon, because canonically TJP is Suicide and became Manic. So they cannot be in the same place at the same time. And yet they did in 2020. It's a cool idea in theory, by the way. The idea, it's like, oh, it's a good tie into the video game that the video game protagonist comes to life in the wrestling company. That's like that's like a nifty idea. Hey, and then he had the a car- cool costume and he had good music. Which is all you need for pro wrestling. And somehow like that character persisted on television all the way through, I want to say 2021. Or did he do an appearance or two in 2022? But yeah, he, he's been on television for much longer than anybody would have anticipated or frankly needed. Yeah, I remember like when I was watching TNA, like I liked him, you know, when he was, especially when he was Frankie Kazarian. He's just like, this guy's got a cool, uh, he's got cool music. He's got a cool costume. His name's Suicide. That's that, that appealed to my like 15 year old senses. He's going around doing springboard leg drops. I thought he was awesome. Yeah, and it's Frankie, and it's Daniels, and it's Kiyoshi, and I think Okada once, and I think Jonathan Gresham once, and TJP. So it's usually a pretty good wrestler. So Okada was, um, uh, Okada was suicide at one point. I think he did like an explosion match, or at least he's listed as doing like an explosion match as suicide. One time I was, uh, when I was a teenager, when Okada, I think, I think he had just left TNA after his his young boy excursion there. And I was on like TNA website. And I was just like scrolling through all their merchandise and you, uh, you click down on like the drop screen and you can search for merchandise by wrestler and it has like everyone on the roster. And I saw like the Okada merchandise and I clicked on it. And I remember as a, as a teenager, just being like, who would 
ever want some merchandise for this random guy who only ever jogged like who would ever want this okato guy's merchandise that's stupid and then like i don't know like a year later he was the biggest star in new japan pro wrestling and like everyone was saying he was the best wrestler in the world um but at the time i didn't know that and certainly tna didn't know that and neither did anybody else by the way that's a big pet peeve of mine where like you could could be like could you have presented okada as like a giant star to a 2000 like 12 wrestling audience no because like even like the average wrestling fan didn't think okada was like this prodigy who should be given the iwgp title immediately like you can say the dna were extremely disrespectful in how they booked okada and it's entirely fair because they gave him a shitty gimmick and bad like really bad but again to go back to the they didn't know what they had with okada nobody did nobody in 2010 knew okada would be that absolutely nobody on earth and if you say you did you're a liar and then he won the title and became the best wrestler in the world for a decade gato did um did you ever well there's a story um where uh the young bucks wrote about this in their book where they were because they're you know they're backstage at the same time and i i wasn't he wasn't with gato it was um i can't remember tiger hattori i think was like with um okada on the excursion or whatever he was there and the young bucks were talking to him and they're like tiger hattori is like you know this young boy because okada he you know he's going to be number one man in japan and the young bucks like okay whatever like good luck with that um and then obviously that came to fruition so some people knew but i think you're right like i, I do think it's it's in hindsight where it's like Oh, they should have pushed Okada to the moon. They had like the greatest wrestler in the world and they didn't know what they were, what they had with them. And it's like, yeah, but like, I don't like, could you like, like, like 20 year old Okada? Is that someone that really would have popped off American television screens? Even now, like, I think Okada's character is kind of understated and like, he's, he's not like um, going to be someone that I think jumps off the page to you the first minute you watch pro wrestling. And that's what you're often looking at when you're introducing a TV character. Because I, I did see Okada when he was in TNA. I was at a, a taping that had an Okada J Lethal Dark match. And I was like, he's a nice little wrestler. <laughs> like, I think that was everybody's, yeah, everybody's thing. He's like, nice little wrestler. You know, the decent, nice little match there against J Lethal. And nothing some people, special, nothing remarkable. And some people will throw out like, oh, they also had Hiroshi Tanahashi because he wrestled a few matches for them in like 2005. So it's like they had Tanahashi and Okada. They didn't do anything with them. And it's like, well, the wrestling landscape's very different. It's kind of unfair to say that in hindsight. I think you can give out about more about the 2008 matches than the 2000. Like 2006, they bring him into Wrestle AG on pay per view. You can't give out about that one. Yeah. <laughs> they brought him to wrestle the rest of the best company and the best wrestler in the company on pay per view. The 2008 ones, which naturally are under Russo, they just bring him in to do like three minute tags where he teams with like Volador against the Motor City Machine Guns. It's like, what are you doing with Hiroshi Tanahashi? Why? <laughs> And like the amount of knowledge uh, of Puro that American wrestling fans had in that time period, even going back to like Okada's young boy days, is very uh, much smaller than it is now because New Japan Pro Wrestling has become a lot more prominent. And even if you're not a, even if you've never watched a second of New Japan Pro Wrestling in your life, um, if you're a wrestling fan and you're like online in any way, shape or form, you could probably know that like Kazushika Okada is like a, a famous wrestler in Japan. You might not know anything else about him, but you would at least recognize him as a name that people talk about as being a big star, I would think. And that just didn't exist, you know, 10, 15 years ago. 
I do think TNA probably played a small role in that because they had the global impact specials that like once a year for two years, there would be a special on Spike TV. That's just a one hour presentation of the TNA related matches on Wrestle Kingdom. And like a million people watched it on Spike, which is kind of crazy to think about that. Like that Angle Nagata match from Wrestle Kingdom in 2008, which would have been one of my first exposures to New Japan as well. Uh, I would have seen bits and pieces on Eurosport over here before that. But that would have been the point at which I started like consistently watching Japanese wrestling. Like TNA again was my, my little gateway into that. But like a million people watched one of those Global Impact specials on Spike. Like a million people watched Wrestle Kingdom on Spike TV in the year 2008, which is kind of crazy to think about. Yeah, like the most watched match in New, J- New Japan match in the history of American TV is is a is that TNA match. It probably is. It's wild. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I remember like talking about like like TNA. Like, I was a really big fan of Amazing Red. Um, you know, when I first started watching TNA, just because something that's I've just ever I've always been gravitated towards, like high flyers and you know explosive athletes. Um, that's just always, even when I was little, I remember like, I remember watching a Paul London cruiserweight match is one of the first matches I remember watching on like an episode of SmackDown. Um, and I remember just being like this guy, Paul London is like my new favorite wrestler. Cause he's just like this amazing quick athlete. And like Paul London was a good wrestler, but he probably wasn't like, you know, the most athletic wrestler in the world in 2004, but just, he was so different than what a lot of the people were were showing you know he was much more athletic than like the undertaker or triple h or like the other big stars that i was familiar with at the time um so i've always been a big fan of those kind of guys and amazing red when i first started watching tna was like a guy who really jumped out to me because he was this small guy that was super fast and he was doing all these innovative spots and really i've started watching you know independent wrestling because i was looking for amazing red matches on youtube and i saw some matches from like pro wrestling syndicate in New York. Um, and that led me to watching a lot of like Chikara matches, which led me to Kota Ibushi, which led me to watching more new Japan um, because he was, you know, tag teaming with, with um, Kenny Omega at the time and that kind of aspects of it. But it all started because TNA was willing to show me a different product than WWE was showing. Um, and I, I want, I think like AEW is kind of filling the vo- that, that space at this time period, um, but even WWE has evolved a lot more so that their product is not nearly as, I think, out of date in the ring as it was like even like six or seven years ago. Yeah, it wasn't willing. They were dried kicking and screaming into it being that way. But I think it, it's funny to watch the, the very same wrestling that people would give out about happening elsewhere. It's like, oh, that's just flippy, no psychology nonsense. And when it happens and say NXT, people are like, wow, best wrestling I've seen all year. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Was it you who said that? Like last week, I remember someone saying, so I remember seeing something somewhere. It's like these moves that are going to be done in like this Lucha match on, on AEW are going to be derided by the same people who are going to celebrate it when it's done at quarters of the speed uh, on NXT next week. Yeah, it tells you most people are full of shit. <laughs> but... um, what kind of like, I guess like if we talk about Impact today a bit, um, and for all of the concerns about, um, well, Impact, like it's it's weird to say, like when we talk about like, well, Impact wasn't able to be successful. Impact wasn't able to sustain success. Those aren't really true statements because Impact is still around today. Um, and it has still found a level of success. It's been around for over 20 years now. Um, 
what kind of like legacy do you see impact having today? Um, and kind of what do you think is like kind of the overall theme of the history of TNA wrestling for its first 20 years? Ooh, that's a broad question with many different answers. Uh, like today, we're in like an era of stability, which is nice because we went through a period where post spike the company was not stable, like from Destination America to Pop to Pursuit to like we're now in an access era where like the company is what it is. And I think it is in a very healthy place at the moment. And it's a good place for people to earn a living. And I think that is ultimately what it has been. Like, like you can be like, what it should, what should have it been? You could have like talked to the cows come home about all the, the various failings. At the end of the day, it's a place where people have earned a living for 21 years that like wrestling would be much worse off if it didn't exist. Like, I don't think if, if TNA didn't take off, if because the only reason TNA sustained is because the Jarrett's took a chance in 2002 it went calamitously very fast, but the Jarrett's then found the connection to the Carters to make it a long-term project. That both comes from the Jarrett's taking a leap and like Dixie was a personal connection of Jeff Jarrett's. Like mm -hmm. that's not like a, a, you know, there was a person who always would have gotten involved in some capacity. That's a, a thing that without Jarrett's first taking the leap and then like, pawning it off on Dixie, <laughs> TNA doesn't exist for as long as it does. So if you don't have that happen, like if the Jarrett's don't sell the company in 02, wrestling probably looks a lot more dire in the years following. Like if you don't have at least a number two, even if it's not a great one, even if it's not the one you want it to be, if there wasn't a at least reasonably sized number two from like 2002 through 2019, which is a very long period of time, it's hard to imagine that you would even have gotten stuff like WWE implementing women's wrestling the way they have, which again is one of the things they had to be dragged kicking and screaming into and then patted themselves in the back for. Uh, it's one of those, I don't think you would have had the influx of indie wrestling. There wouldn't have been the same pressure on them to do that until, you know, obviously if you take TNA out of the world, it's hard to think about what the knock-on effects would be, but it's it's not the case that another person tried to come along in the TNA years. There was always rumblings of it. So I think, like, you, you can almost call it a stopgap, but that's the legacy of TNA. It's a, a thing that needed to exist for a long time, otherwise WWE would dominate wrestling and it would be terrible, so... And it almost started because Jeff Jarrett ran afoul of Vince McMahon and couldn't go back uh, to WWE. Yeah, he just needed a place to work, which is ultimately where TNA comes from, which is very funny. And, um, you know, it was funny. You were talking about, like, the different creative heads um, mm. that had kind of gotten run in TNA over the years. And um, it does say something about, like, who gets to hold the pencil in w in, in pro wrestling who gets to be a booker uh in pro wrestling and like the the history of tna's creative teams are largely stemming from people that were doing it somewhere else they were doing it in wwf they were doing it in wwe they were doing it in wcw they were doing it in other places it's all people who kind of are from the past bringing that experience over and writing for tna and it's really interesting how like closed of an industry like being a, a creative head for a major pro wrestling company is um, the only two people that I can really think of uh, in recent kind of memory that have done it have been Billy Corgan and Tony Khan, who largely bought their way into that kind of position. 
by financing their own companies. Um, and it, it does kind of speak to how stunted pro wrestling creativity is in the sense that, yeah, WWE has a team of writers, but they're all, you know, under Vince's thumb and they're all people who are probably not going to be tremendous pro wrestling minds. If that lawsuit is any indication. They certainly aren't. Um, but it's kind of, and you look at like, whether it was Dusty Rhodes, whether it was Vince Russo, whether it was Bruce Pritchard, whether it was John Gaborik, you know, the history of TNA kind of, you know, is, is part of that where it's like, where, why hasn't, why has it been so hard for like, uh, a, whether it's a younger person or a lesser experienced person to come in and, and get control and write a wrestling product for like to a a major or semi-major audience why is that so difficult and and how has that stunted people's creative views on what what is pro wrestling because it still seems like it's all entirely uh being conducted under the vision of Vince McMahon because it's either Vince McMahon running creative or people who worked for Vince McMahon all running creative for other companies uh and just everything feels so stunted now and it's something that really I think about when I think about like TNA's history is consistently kind of employing those kinds of people yeah, and you just don't get fresh voices. I had, I had that breaking point in whatever year it was that WWE hired Heyman and Bischoff to run Raw and SmackDown. And I'm like, you looked out into the entire wrestling world and you picked the two guys from the 90s again. <laughs> like That was the you, greatest era of pro wrestling, Garrett. Like, you you, you had to get those guys. Uh, and like, as you said, when you look at TNA, like it started Jeff and Jerry Jarrett, Jerry Jarrett trying to write this territory stuff, then Vinnie Rue trying to write his crash TV. Then like the only time in basically company history, you get a new voice is like anytime Scott Demore is at the company. Mm-hmm. Like he's the, the only he's guy. The one. He's like he's the like, one guy that has actual like non Vince brain ideas. Yeah. He's the, he's the one person. And I think the entire history of the company basically who had like a substantial creative say in the product, who was not just like either Vince Disciple or even like Scott has never worked for WWE, I don't think. Well, he did superstar squash matches, if you count that, and then like the, the mid 90s. But uh, then you like you go to Hogan Bischoff, then you go to Bruce Pritchard, who again, I think people forget Bruce Pritchard is still one of the main creative forces behind WWE's television today. So it's again, one of the same old voices. Uh, then you have Dave Lagana, who's another WWE voice, uh, John Gaborik. Then you, you get into Billy and Billy lasts like 15 minutes. And then you go back to Demore <laughs> and Don Callis for a little bit. So like Demore is the only one in the entire like 21 history year history of the company that is not just let's let somebody who has done it, uh, done it for another company do it here. Demore is the only like new voice who was given an opportunity in DNA. And you're right. It's like WWE has never had a new voice. It's Vince. It's been Vince for as long as Vince has been alive. Even when Vince in theory didn't work for the company, it was still his creative vision, really, especially when Richard was still there. And like, as you said, the, Tony Khan has bought his way in and Billy has kind of bought his way in for whatever the NWA is worth. And you can see that the NWA has been considerably worse, even like post Lagana. At least it had a vision then, even if it wasn't good. But now it's just not good. Yeah, and, that, uh, and that's, a, that's the thing with like, Tony has his strengths and weaknesses as a booker and he's far from a perfect booker. But I think a huge advantage he has is just simply being like, not someone who was directly influenced or had to work underneath Vince McMahon. And, and it, I think his biggest weaknesses nearly universally come from when he tries to be. Like when he yeah. tries to, to in- incorporate that other stuff instead of doing his own vision. Right. Like the absolute worst ideas that get either suggested by IE, AEW or they end up doing them in AEW are because have a, at least a whiff of being like trying to be sports entertainment E, trying to be like WWE. Um, and that's certainly been a lot of the criticism of the product over the last month or so. 
um but like in to- but i do like tony's like creative vision is very refreshing to me as a as a wrestling fan to be able to turn on a major national television product and see something that is in a lot of ways new and original and open-minded to the directions that creative directions that wrestling has been going in over the last few years and not, not stuck in old ways and that only exists that only exists because tony khan's father is phenomenally wealthy and tony happens to be like the only uh child of a billionaire who like loves pro wrestling and wants to be wants to use some of that family wealth to run a pro wrestling company and that's like a freakish occurrence um there are probably many people who could be uh, as good or better than Tony at running the company and, and coming up with creative ideas for pro wrestling, but there's no opportunities for those people. And that's a really creatively stunted environment, especially when you compare it, compare it to other, you know, artistic endeavors like television writing and movie writing. There's plenty of diversity in, you know, screenwriting and things like that in a way that doesn't exist in pro wrestling. And we're, we're the pro wrestling fans are worse off for it. Even if you go down to the level of the indies, it's weirdly institutionalized and in that like Super Dragon has been there forever. And you have Gabe Sapolsky, who ran one of the major three, I guess, uh, indies for the best part of 15 years from Ring of Honor to DGUSA to Evolve. Like even there, there's not a ton of fresh voices. Like you didn't get Gabe moving up to getting a shot at Raw, which is, probably is what should happen, right? Like post Ring of Honor, it's like you, you did a good job there. Let's give you a go here. That's what in theory should happen. And I guess you have, you have smaller indies. You have like Beyond and Defy and all the other companies who do have different creative voices. But it, it, it's just there's no platform for those people to move up to produce larger scale wrestling because it's yeah, just it, all it's hard. those positions are held by the same people. Yeah. And it's hard on the indies to really like cement a strong creative vision because your roster changes at an alarming rate. You might not have like a like a standard weekly television style format like uh, Beyond, you know, Beyond's a good example because you know, with Drew Cordero, Beyond has experimented, you know, with the weekly television. And that allows for kind of a level of consistent creative direction in a way that if you're like just super dragon and you're just, you know, booking names and, and telling who's going to win and who's going to lose is very different than like what I would consider like a, a real like traditional wrestling booker where you're booking weekly programming and you've got to have a long-term vision and you've got to tell various stories all at once. Um and it, it, it's 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 been closed-minded and it, i think part of that is like whether it's dixie carter you know constantly feeling like they needed to have that kind of person running things to feel confident that the product was moving in the right example in, in, in a positive way i'm not sure but that tna is kind of i guess like reluctance to really empower um a new creative mind i think is one of the kind of the the, the negative legacies of the company and i do think it's a lot of the people who are like oh, you need a wrestling person to run the wrestling company. Oh, Jerry Jarrett with years of experience or Vince Russo with years of experience. And I think like all of those people push those narratives over and over again that like, oh, experience is the most important part. You have to understand wrestling. You have to have a proven track record. Yes, the old snake oil salesman, the carnies will will be the first to tell you, you need to have one of our people in charge if you really want to run a wrestling company. Yeah, and ignore the fact that their track record is spottier than anybody's, but they have experience, I guess. Um, so it's just hard to get into those roles. And as I said, when WWE is like a monopoly and run by Vince with an iron fist for as long as it has been, 
there's there's so few opportunities and when tna is like we'll take the leftovers basically we'll take whatever writer you cut who's willing to come here between Lagana or gaboric or pritchard or any of them um you don't get new ideas and you don't get a new vision of professional wrestling and there, I, I don't think it's a, a coincidence that the, the point at which tna felt freshest and newest on the wrestling scene like 0506 it was a new voice it was scott Demore leading a booking committee with the likes of mike tna jeremy Boarsh, dutch mantel a bunch of people who didn't have WCW or WWE experience who are bringing their own fresh perspectives and creating something that felt a little different. Well, today did, but not in a booking capacity. He worked for WCW, obviously, but I don't think he ever booked WCW. So it was a bunch of people with new ideas and the company felt fresh and different. Funny yeah. how that works. And it's not to say that 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 people that maybe come from working under events don't have any new ideas or, or, are mm. a, or they're all of absolutely zero value. But when it's time and time again, people who are just it just seems so when you're look when you need to have that on your resume i think it really limits the potential creative voices that you have um working for you and you know AEW if AEW ends up by by most accounts AEW is run in a similar way in the sense that Tony Khan controls everything in that company from a creative standpoint so AEW yes Tony Khan is a is a new name on the scene relatively speaking but AEW doesn't seem like at, at least the way they're currently constructed is going to be giving a lot of opportunities to maybe some up and coming creative minds because it's that's Tony's job it's what Tony, Tony's not going to give that up unless he absolutely has to and I think the company would be a little bit better off if they did because they have a lot of outlets where you can give a ring of honor to somebody. You don't have to book all that yourself. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely true. And I would like to see, like, I don't even, I don't, like, maybe part of it, this is part of the problem. Like, I don't know who these people are. Is it a, a wrestler who you want to give the book to? Is it uh, some online poster who's got a lot of good ideas um, that I would you feel comfortable giving them the book? I have no idea. Like, I don't know where the the prospect of uh, of up and coming wrestling writers are. I'm sure there are many people that would love to have that job, but how many of them would you feel confident handing it to? And that that and that's probably why TNA struggled to do that because they were looking for somebody that had experience, you know, to get to hand the book to. And the only place you could get experience was either WCW or WWE. And I guess the contrast, the stakes, like if you're Ring of Honor or if you're Tony, you can hand Ring of Honor over to somebody with not quite like no downside. Like if it's booked badly, people will be mad, but you know, it's Ring of Honor. Whereas like TNA, the entire company hung on how that company was booked. So rather than you, as you said, if you take a chance on somebody new, you're taking a chance with your entire company on this person. Yeah. So th that's the reason you're like, hey, maybe we'll try Dusty Rhodes instead. Yeah. Like, well, like Triple H was allowed to have NXT to, you know, practice around it and things like that you know even in wwe they gave you know him basically a, a blank slate where he could execute his creative vision which seemed to consist mostly of signing really talented wrestlers and uh debuting them to big pops and then having them basically wrestle their indie matches uh which uh, you're not gonna believe this garrett it somehow worked letting well, the, the guys who were, had good matches yeah signing the guys who were really talented and then not getting in their way uh and letting them just be really talented, it somehow got over. I don't, I don't know how, because it seems like that would be impossible, but it somehow worked. I don't know. I think they should have five minute TV matches and lose to Kevin Nash. It's the formula. <laughs> what is? Can can you tell us a uh, a wacky? What is a wacky? You know, TNA story. It could be like a a crazy angle that happened, um, or something like that that you don't think a lot of people know about. Because we know some of the major ones, like people know Claire Lynch. Right. 
Um, and people know some of, you know, we know all about aces and eights and things like that. What, what are some memorable ones that maybe people either forgot about or never heard of before? Like, is there a particularly funny one that you think it kind of goes under the radar as far as just like a really memorable TNA moment? I would like to first mention that the original name for the Joseph Park character was Beebus, because it was Abyss with an A, and they go letter down to Beebus. <laughs> the stupid. Did they ever say ever that on television? No, they right. they didn't. That was a pitch for it apparently, an original plan for the Joseph Park character to be called Beebus. <laughs> I hated the Joseph Park character. Really, I love Joseph. It's Park. one of those things that, in hindsight, I totally understand like why it worked and why it's like positively received. But like when it was happening again when I was a teenager, um, I was more. I was just like. I just want to see this big dude, you know, slam people into thumbtacks and I don't have time for him to pretend to be like this comedy character. But I understand as far as like a, a complete 180 degree change from the character that, you know, Chris Parks had been presented as a, as a wrestling uh, persona, it he he nailed it. Yeah, he's a he's a talented dude. He's in, is he still in WWE? Yeah, he still produces. A lot of those, you know, all those guys did end up as kind of like when Triple H was looking to build his his, his you know little army of of people that were going to help him take over WWE. Uh, you know, a lot of those people are you know TNA alumni. Yeah, look at where Abyss got his first producing chances. W or TNA. Look at where Sanjay got his first producing chances. TNA. Uh, Pat Buck, I think, got his first like major producing chances in TNA as well. So, uh, it's it's like it, it, the the TNA tendrils spread far and wide the, the the influence of TNA and impact is i know i do a bit on twitter where i pretend everything has roots in TNA <laughs> but you come I up with interesting it... stuff like stuff that you forgot like i i you know didn't know existed but you do you do find you know you're you're doing a bit but it is there is a lot of like creative stuff from back then yeah, it's because there's like a little bit of truth in the bit because like you, you can draw a ton of things that happened in wrestling over the last 20 years back to something that happened in TNA because like that is ultimately like the little joy of TNA over 20 years that it has been so many things through so many different creative visions that at least a little bit of it will be for you somewhere. If you dig through that entire 20 year archive, you will find bits and bobs that you like appreciate or you'll you'll enjoy Goldilocks far more than you ever should. And she got a ton of crap at the time and I kind of get why because of the general vibe of the product, but she was very good. She was like very silly in that role. That's Goldilocks when she was a heel manager of Alex Shelley <laughs> pretending to be like a 60s Hollywood actress. It's great fun. But yeah, yeah I think like that's that's what when people like look back at tna as like uh, the the archives are increasingly becoming available uh, for every episode of impact like that's what people will find people will find just all of those gems and those weird stories and those one-off matches and the oh i never knew x worked for tna because literally everybody did but like it, it, it is more unusual that somebody didn't come through tna than they did so like everybody's there doing something whether it's like randy savage's last match or a weird briscoe's 2002 appearance yeah, in, in that, and that, and you definitely mentioned that, like, as the archives have become more available, and you mentioned like Deadlock, Deadlock doing a lot of like TNA stuff, and there is so much stuff to unpack there. And a lot of it, um, it features names people recognize, whether they went on to be bigger stars in TNA or they went on to be bigger stars in other companies. Um, that stuff is there, and it hasn't been covered to death, like the Attitude Era or the Ruthless Aggression Era or these other eras of WWE or WCW that you know, fill up most of our nostalgia time uh, when it comes to podcasts and YouTube videos and things like that. There's a lot of stuff that is under the radar that rewards you if you go looking for it. 
Yeah, when you talk about like a, a Drew Galloway, you know, a guy who's a main event act in WWE, uh, won the world title. It's like, does he get that chance without getting like a year or two in TNA where he can become a headline guy on TV and like get those feet under him? Or like Bobby Lashley is the, the best mm-hmm. example of like if Bobby Lashley didn't have his TNA run in 2014, you wouldn't have Bobby Lashley on WWE TV now. He wouldn't have grown into perf- the performer that I think everybody looked at him in 2006 and thought he could be and never happened. And then suddenly whatever happened, whatever magic struck in 2014 TNA, it's like that's the Bobby Lashley everybody saw. You know, that's the overall potential. And that happened in TNA. And again, without TNA, that doesn't happen. And I, I think there's a lot of people through the, the history of TNA when you look like a Matt Hardy with the final deletion and stuff or like even like eric young in recent years a guy who just got no opportunity in wwe whatsoever and went back to tna and became like a credible main event act or even like a steve macklin with the current world champion a guy people didn't even know was a good wrestler (laughs) while he was in wwe and he's given like a platform i think when like tna is at its best it's 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 like that it's giving people a platform whether it's aj to grow into aj or whether it's like a matt hardy or a sting to reinvent themselves as broken matt hardy or joker sting and do something that's a little silly, but a little bit fun and a little different that they wouldn't get a chance to do elsewhere. When when they just got out of their talent's way and let them do something cool and interesting, that's when TNA was at its best. And it, it like it didn't always do it, and it probably didn't do it enough. But when it did, it produced some pretty good results. Joker's thing is is big in the UK. I know that. I've I've heard that. But whenever it, it, it's it's so funny, like because there's aces and eights nostalgia now, which boggles my mind because nobody liked it at the time. And I that, that, it turned me off the product. And that like is a terrible angle where you're watching Wes Briscoe matches every week. It was no good, but it, it's, it's funny again, because that stuff was a decade ago. So like the, the people who watched that when they were 13, 14, and they're now in their twenties and have nostalgia for that. It's fun to see that kind of stuff come around because a lot of that stuff was a long time ago. Now it was the stuff people watched during their formative years. And if there's anything you learn on Twitter, it's that people will have nostalgia for the absolute worst professional wrestling <laughs> that they watched when they grew up with. Yeah. Um, so you'll see a lot of that, even the bad TNA stuff come back around as uh, is stuff people have a fondness for. Every single wrestler in the Attitude Era was great. Mm, like never a matter. bad one. What your act was, it doesn't matter. You know, how often you were on TV, it doesn't matter how talented you were, it's just everything. There will be somebody out there who will tell you, man, I miss these people so much or this act, this wrestler so much. There's nostalgia for literally everything. So it doesn't surprise me that there's aces and eights nostalgia out there. You'll see tweets at least once a week being like, we got to give Jinder more credit for his world title reign. It's like, no, we do not. We do not. We give him the appropriate amount of credit. And frankly, you're giving him too much. What is the, there's a, uh, there's a great like viral tweet. And it's like, um, people will just tweet anything on this app. Like Charlie Brown had hose. Like, no, he didn't. <laughs> and that's true. Like people will say, I mean, with wrestlers now, because it's a, uh, there's, there's, Something to be gained by just saying everything is great all the time. You'll be able to find, I mean, look at all the people that like NXT 2.0 and every single wrestler on NXT 2.0 is, is very good or is very interesting. Or I love how much, how hard they try. There's no one who's just bad. They're just all great in their own way. Um, and that will eventually manifest itself into nostalgia for, for literally everyone. Um, Jinder Mahal, we got to give Jinder more credit. Um but uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much it. Like I said, uh, it's a great discussion. I'm, I'm happy to talk with you about it. Um, do you have anything you want to plug? Yeah, if you heard me talk about TNA for like an hour and a half now, and you're like, I'd like to hear him talk more about TNA. <laughs> There's on this very podcasting network, you've got to be kidding me, where me and Liam Jones, he gives out if I don't plug his Twitter on shows. So you can follow him at the 
Philippe Muda. He gave out to me about that once. It's like, why don't you plug my Twitter on guest spots you're doing? It's like, fine, Liam, I'll plug your Twitter. But uh, you can listen to us talk all about TNA. We're in the middle of 2005. Our July 2005 episode just came out where the Spike TV deal is imminent. They technically announced it in a backwards promo at the start of No Surrender 2005, which is a funny way to announce your monumental tv deal but uh yeah that's you've got to be kidding me on your your preferred podcasting network or if you're listening to this very show on the voices wrestling feed it'll be there you can see the words you can click on it and listen to it all right well i want to thank garrett so much for coming out to the show coming out to the show like i like you like you came out to the show uh yeah you flew physically. me in actually it's, it's, it's a very oh. elaborate operation i really appreciate it yeah the, the, we flew you in uh you had a lot of demands like you needed a limo service you needed a few um escorts too that was i probably shouldn't say that on air but you need that too um yeah it was with the very special guest demand yeah (laughs) they they all came in one (laughs) it was a lot so um uh we'll we'll see if we can uh we don't know if we'll book you again uh we'll have to see what the return is uh at the we'll have to add up the gate receipts for your appearance but uh really appreciate you coming on the show i appreciate everyone that's been listening um thanks a lot for everyone and we will see you again in a little bit Hey everybody, my name is Jesse Collings and I want to tell you all about my show, The Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast, here on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. On The Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast, we do a thorough analysis on the biggest issues and trends within the pro wrestling industry. We talk a lot about pro wrestling media, we talk a lot about fan culture and wrestling's place within general pop culture, and we talk about the broader influences that are shaping the way we discuss and analyze the pro wrestling industry. We've had some of the brightest minds in the pro wrestling intelligentsia on the show, including WrestleNomics host Brandon Thurston, both Rich Krejci and Joe Lanza from the Flagship Wrestling Podcast, Trevor Dame from the Through the Years Podcast, and a whole lot more. This isn't a show for hot takes. It's not a show recapping the latest episode of television. This is a show focusing on the biggest topics in pro wrestling and doing a deep dive on the real stories behind the surface level analysis you might find elsewhere. The Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd really appreciate it if you gave us a try. Thanks.